Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Good evening and welcome. I have to tell you, I'm a little overwhelmed because librarians don't get this much excitement that often. (laughs) And so this is quite thrilling. Also, we have a class that's here from the University of Maryland, um, the Information Studies class. It's uh, Information School. They're studying about libraries, and they just did a review of the websites of libraries throughout the country. Some were very flashy and things like that, but what they also found was that no other library, including that one up kind of in New York, I don't know, that one, um, has the type of programming that the Enoch Pratt Free Library has for free. Thank you, class. Thank you for being there. I think they all are going to get an A after this. But we are truly honored and so pleased that you could be here tonight with us. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Any Pratt Free Library. And as you can tell, this is a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. All of this programming would not have been possible without the talent and the perseverance of our programmer, Judy Cooper. Many of you have been here before and you know Judy Cooper. I think she deserves a hand. Yes, she is something. And also our very, very generous donors. Someone asked me just a few minutes ago about the reserve seats. Well, I have to tell you, those seats were reserved for people who have given so generously to this library that we're able to be here tonight on nice new chairs. And make it possible for us to not only keep the doors open, but to make sure that Pratt is the best library, we think, in this area and maybe even the country. So thank you, thank you. Now, we're very pleased, and you may have noticed that the books tonight are being sold by the Ivy Bookshop. And many of you are patrons of the Ivy Bookshop, and we're very pleased that our partnership is continuing, and the new owner, Mr. Ira Berlin, is here with his staff, and thank you for continuing that partnership. Yes, that's that's that. And I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity with this captive audience who's waiting to hear Chris Matthews to let you know about some of the other authors that are coming very soon. This Sunday, we will have King Peggy, and many of you have heard about her, a Ghanaian lady who is now king of a village um, in Ghana, and she will be here. We also will have, on April 14th, the biographer of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson, will be here for our City Lit Festival. One of our favorite and provocateurs, Mr. Tavis Smiley, will be here on uh, April 18th. And please mark your calendar because we just found out that former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright will be here on May the 10th. And we're really, really excited about that. And I'm also going to make a plea to you to help us get someone else 
that talks about being fair and balanced, and we're trying to get him to come. Many of you know who that might be. He's got a new book coming out, and we think that Baltimore might be a very receptive and open place for ideas. So we are working on that, too. Of course, for a complete listing of all of the programs, you've seen our Compass uh, newsletter. You can follow us um, on Twitter and Facebook. And in fact, Roswell Encina is tweeting right now and saying, standing room only at the Pratt Library in Baltimore. So thank you very much. You may know that uh, Mr. Matthews actually had a taping tonight at 5 o'clock. In fact, some people told me that they uh, actually saw the live. So he is here, and we will be starting in just a second because we are very pleased that our other partner, uh, WYPR, um, has provided someone very special to introduce Mr. Matthews. He's special not only because he um, has his own show midday on WYPR and has been a great supporter of the Pratt Library, but he's really special today, and you don't have to do anything like sing, uh, but ha he, this is his birthday today. So Mr. Dan Rodericks um, will be here. And so if you do sing, just very shortly. And that. So, please, if you haven't had a chance to get your book, uh, please do so now. And I'll be back in just a second. The time has come. We are very excited. I mentioned Mr. Dan Rodericks, so I think we could maybe just a little happy birthday, just a little. Mr. Dan Rodericks and Mr. Chris Matthews. I'm sorry. I've told your secret. You did? Oh, Carl. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. How do all these people get in my room? What's going on here? Thank you and good evening everybody. Thank you very much for that. It's an honor for me to introduce Chris Matthews to you tonight. He got onto my radar first as a newspaper columnist who did some broadcasting work. And being a newspaper columnist who did some broadcasting work myself, I took an interest in, in Chris's work and came to appreciate how challenging the transition to full-time broadcasting, particularly the television kind, was. It called for a different kind of writing, the writing of broadcast scripts, attending production meetings with others and working as part of a team instead of working singularly as a writer crafting ideas into words. It required reading teleprompters, and listening to a director through an earpiece while trying to conduct an interview with someone in a distant studio. That's a whole lot different than sitting in front of a computer and cranking out a thousand words of original prose. In the late 1980s, Chris Matthews served as Washington bureau chief for the San Francisco Examiner and wrote a twice-weekly column. He told the New York Times that he had envisioned himself a big city columnist like Jimmy Breslin 
who could walk into a bar and have people give him grief about his column. But San Francisco wasn't one of those newspaper towns. It looks like an eastern city, Chris told the Times, but it's pretty hard for people to read newspapers when they're riding a bike. Still, uh, the column at the Examiner and then the San Francisco Chronicle gave him an affiliation. It got him on TV. He appeared on uh, the CBS, uh, CBS This Morning, Good Morning America. His first show, Two Hours Nightly, started in 1994 on an obscure network called America's Talking. Hardball had its debut in 1997 on CNBC. Now, of course, MSNBC. Hardball was the title of Chris's best-selling handbook on real-life politics, published in 1988. He's been on the air every weeknight since. In 2002, NBC inaugurated Sunday Morning's The Chris Matthews Show. He's the author of five books. His new book, the one we're here to hear about tonight, Jack Kennedy, Elusive Hero, released in November, is a wonderful read. And again, for me, having grown up Roman Catholic in Massachusetts in the time of Kennedy's rise, providing a deep personal connection to an exciting era in history that was all too brief. The book is written with affection and respect for JFK, but it prods and pokes at its subject in the journalistic tradition, raising questions about the late president and trying to answer them. Most impressive for me in Jack Kennedy, elusive hero, was the chronicle of JFK's illnesses from his youth through the White House and how he endured so many setbacks and so much pain while on his heroic journey to the height of power. And all readers, I think, will be awed by that. Anyway, without further delay, I give you a man who stays on top of things like few other TV journalists covering American politics today. And he asks tough questions and brings energy and passion to his job every night. And we're lucky to have him here with us tonight. And Chris Matthews, as a token of my appreciation for you coming up to Baltimore, yes. I had a little uh, prize for you here. Something that's real Baltimore for you that you can appreciate maybe tomorrow uh, at breakfast or dinner. It's a pound and a half of Polish sausage from Ostrowski's. I don't know. I couldn't think of anything else. It's Chris Matthews. All right. I hope you like the sausage. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice introduction. Nice introduction. You know, I've got a, a copy of this book, which I, uh, every once in a while when I'm feeling low, I go, oh, there, there you are. <laughs> I wrote this. And uh, it's my, uh, I love this book. I happen to have written it, but there's no doubt I love it. And because it's about, uh, this guy, this hero, and like all heroes, he's flawed. I keep telling that to people. You want a hero? Don't look for somebody with no flaws. Senator Sarbanes, thanks for coming tonight. I have incredible good eyes for politicians. I once saw Senator Sarbanes on an Amtrak, and uh, there he was with that dimly lit little light there, and he had a, uh, I shouldn't tell it, he had a scarf on, and he's wearing a tweed jacket, and he's reading a hardbound book, and I said, how many U.S. senators can be caught like that? (laughs) I said, that's an unusual sight for me among senators, a hardbound book. 
Uh, I just watched Game Change. You have got to see it. It is spectacular. Anyway, I was thinking about this book tonight and I've been going through it again and I had this phrase in here. Um, I won't find it, but it's about a guy who I kept trying to say, how do I write a book about a prince? How am I going to write a book with any empathy in it for a guy that seemed to have had everything? You usually like to root for the David against the Goliath. How do you root for Goliath? How do you root for the one who starts on one of that wonderful felicitous phrases? Hi, Durbin. Durbin is my floor director. He's here tonight. And uh, boy, are my eyes good tonight. <laughs> it's like Ed Sullivan, also in our audience tonight. <laughs> And I wanted to write about a guy, so what I did was I had a very simple procedure. I figured out that he had about 12 really close pals. And he's one of these people like I do it, and a lot of people in public life do it. You have to have old friends as anchors. You have to have real friends because you have other associates. And, you know, as I, when I got my first job writing speeches for President Carter, uh, a friend of mine, Pat Sullivan, said, notice any new friends? And I think if you're president of the United States, you've got a lot of new friends. And so what you have to do is find the old ones and keep up with them. And so Jack Kennedy had this little group around him. They were his golden circle. And it began with, uh, with Lem Billings. Lem Billings, as his father, Joe Kennedy, said, moved in with his tattered suitcase in high school and never left. He had a room at the White House. He was single, never got married, and said, okay, I never got married, I never had a family, but I had a room at the White House with my friend Jack Kennedy. Right through the end, he had this room, it's like a character out of Gatsby. You know those unexplained characters in Great Gatsby that are like living there? One would be playing the piano, one would just be somewhere around and never quite explained why they're there. Well, you know, Lem Billings was there. Lem Billings was the guy who had the unusual assignment of going to Jacqueline Kennedy and I love the name Jackie Bouvier. That's who she was, Jackie Bouvier. Jack snagged her. And uh, Lem's job, unassigned, was to go to Jackie Bouvier the day of the wedding and say, I got to tell you about my friend. He's a bachelor. He's unlikely to change. <laughs> and Jackie took it. She knew Jack's uh, reputation. She knew Jack's father's reputation. She knew her own father's reputation, certainly. Black Jack Bouvier. And then he went back to Jack and said, I told her about you. And this is the day of the wedding. And he said, thanks. This is strange. Chuck Spaulding, a man who had a friend, he was a prep school friend of Jack's. They were from the same sort of background, prep school background. He said he had a chemistry relationship with Jack. They just were chemically connected. He said to me when he was with him on his wedding day, he was a groomsman, he said that Jack Kennedy was two people that day. He was the groomsman. I mean, I'm sorry, he was the, the bridegroom, appropriately so. But he was also the omniscient observer of the whole occasion. He knew what everybody was doing that day, what their emotions were. He was tracking everyone's course in the wedding party. And I thought, boy, that's interesting. Because that's exactly what Clark Clifford told me about Jack Kennedy. And he was the great presidential counselor. He said, when you're in a meeting with Jack Kennedy... You could see his spirit rise up from his body to the top of the room, survey the room, and know what everybody in that room was up to. Every emotion, every political ambition, whatever, he could track it, chart it, figure out how he could use it. Now just imagine a person with that incredible breadth of understanding of those around them, their emotions as well as their ambitions, 
and never once letting it affect him. The most interdirected person I've ever come across is Jack Kennedy. He did what he wanted to do every moment of his life. He was on Jack Kennedy's agenda. He set his course in life. He was the skipper. He was the captain of his ship in a way that I've never come across in literature or in life. A person who wasn't affected by others' emotions, yet in his case, fully understood them. So imagine, ladies who are here tonight, being married to such a customer. He knew your feelings. He knew what you cared about. He knew when he was hurting you, and he did it, notwithstanding. Totally interdirected. And now, think of the good side of that. We had that guy in the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had someone who could grasp. This wasn't about macho when the Russians put the uh, missiles into Cuba. It wasn't about being outgamed and having to win the next round. It was about avoiding a nuclear catastrophe, a holocaust. It was about avoiding a chain reaction that only you could start and you wouldn't be able to stop it. And so what did Jack Kennedy did? He used that amazing ability to survey the emotions of those around him, including Curtis LeMay, who was Air Force chief, Air Force chief, whose idea was a total strike against the Soviet Union, killing everyone in all the captive nations of Eastern and Central Europe that he could. That was his idea. And Kennedy said, we call ourselves civilized to even think about such a prospect. Dean Acheson, the great brand, the great credible man, of course, at the creation of the Cold War, he was there with Truman, the greatest Cold War, perhaps. Dean Acheson said, hit the bases, hit the missiles. He had people like this around me. George Bundy, the man who looked up to so much intellectually, said, strike the bases. And he began to think, yeah, that makes sense. We're going to hit those bases in Cuba because they put those nuclear weapons there and we've got to knock them out. And then he began to think and his conscience began to work. And he began to think, are we going to be the Japanese at Pearl Harbor? Are we going to hit another country that hasn't hit us? And he began to think about the possibilities. And those possibilities were these. If we bombed them, and we had the right to do it within the Monroe Doctrine and our own sense of self-defense, what would happen? How many Russians would we kill who were there as, as uh, advisors and, and service people? How many in uniform and how not many in uniform were there? Thousands of them. We thought, Ted, it turned out to be 30-some thousand. How many would we kill them? How many Cubans would we have to kill to basically invade the island because it was the only way to do it? You had to take out their, their AAA fire. You couldn't send in the bombers. You had to send in the fighters first. You had to knock out their uh, anti-aircraft fire. You had to basically complete a full invasion to go after their missile sites. And even then he was warned he'd only get 90% of the missiles if he was lucky. So some would be free to strike us after we struck. And you go, and then you knew, as he did, the Khrushchev had warned, if we struck Cuba he was going to hit Berlin. And he also knew the Berlin situation with us with 15,000 combined NATO forces of our three countries, the French, the British, and us, and 350,000 uh, Warsaw Pact troops right there, ready, poised to go into West Berlin, knowing that he would have to use nuclear weapons first tactically to offset that tremendous advantage or else give up Berlin. And he's thinking all this in his head, one man, one person, he's thinking, if I do this one reasonable thing, they will do the next reasonable thing. Khrushchev will grab Berlin. Then I will be forced to do the next reasonable thing, commit first use of tactical weapons to stop the Red Army from grabbing Berlin, or else I will be 
forever unforgiven as an American president for giving away Western Europe. And so he's thinking of all this thing, how do I get out of this thing? How do I avoid war? And everyone else is thinking, well, just do this, just do this. And this is why we elect our commander in chief. Uniquely in our constitution, we pick the person who will make these kinds of decisions. Not some military guy following the rule book or the manual or looking out for how to react in the first instance to what needs to be done, but what needs to be done to save this planet in a situation like that. And so Kennedy found his way to not striking those bases, to cutting a deal with the Turkish bases secretly with, with Khrushchev. In a way, he was more Chamberlain than Churchill. He wasn't his hero, but he found a way to get around it because he had to. It turns out that Kennedy had it just right. There were many more Soviet troops in Cuba than anyone thought at the time. There would have, many more would have been killed in any kind of combat operation. We would have sent in 150,000 soldiers into Cuba, fought them on the ground, the beginning of a third world war on the ground. Many of the missiles would not have been taken out in the first several strikes. And here's what would have happened, because it's in Khrushchev's memoirs what would have happened. He said, if the Americans had struck our, ba our bases in Cuba, if I had one or two missiles left, and he had intermediate range missiles with a 3,000 mile range, I was gonna hit New York. That was his plan, his deliberate plan, which he admitted to, confessed to in his memoirs was his plan. He said, because I think I wouldn't have killed everybody in New York, but I would have killed, them enough, killed enough Americans in the millions that they would know what it was like to fight a war on their own territory. He wanted us to get a taste of their own great patriotic war in World War II. And even he was short-sighted because there's no way in the world an American president, Democrat or Republican, in 1962 who, have let, who would have let it stop there. If we'd been hit in New York with millions of people killed, any president would have to push the trigger for an all-out strike against the Soviet Union. In fact, that's what Kennedy said he would do. Any strike from Cuba would be responded to with an attack on the Soviet Union. And so we were so close. When you talk to your kids about this, I think you gotta tell them how close we came to a nuclear conflagration for the whole planet involved. And both countries had the power to do it, they still do. And Kennedy was the only man, he and Bobby, God, we should all have brothers like Bobby, thought it through together. And without McNamara, those three men basically were the difference between what could have happened and what we avoided. And so when I think about Jack Kennedy as a flawed hero, I think, yes, he could be cold, calculated, self-interest, enormously interdirected, but boy, did he have wisdom? Did he have wisdom when we needed it? And I think back about his career and the, and the guts to do what Kennedy called brace under pressure. And I think, you know, it isn't so much different than what we saw him do back when he was in the service in World War II. And, and let me give you another situation which I've come to understand, I think as fully as anybody can. You're captain of a PT boat. It's basically made of plywood. In the middle of the night, it's two o'clock in the morning, you have no radar. You're, one of your three engines is working because you're worried about the phosphorescence it's causing because you're in Japanese waters and Japanese planes are flying overhead and you can't expose yourself and there's no stars and there's no moon and all of a sudden, just like in the film, master and commander, something is there and you yell general quarters but it's too late to turn the wheel and a Japanese destroyer cuts between, well, within 11 feet of you. You see it right there in front of you. Jack Kennedy said, I knew what it felt like to die. 
at that moment because of the concussion of that incredible destroyer. Passing through at 40 knots, the captain of the Japanese ship didn't even know he had done it. They were moving so quickly through this very fragile, almost balsa wood boat. And there's Kennedy at two o'clock in the morning, suddenly within seconds, 15 seconds this all happened. His back had been killing him all his life. He shouldn't have been in the Navy, had to sort of get through the Navy with the help of one of his father's friends. And all of a sudden he has to save his crew. Part of the ship is gone, the stern is passed away into the burning gasoline in the water, smelling, all you can do is hear the crackling of gasoline in the water burning and the crackle of fire. He orders abandoned ship because he's afraid the ship's going to blow. And then he gets his guys back on the boat. He takes roll. He realizes he's got a couple guys missing. In fact, he's got two other guys missing. He goes swimming through the gasoline which's burning in the water. He's a good swimmer. He swims to this and finds Pappy McMahon. He's the 42-year-old engineer. He's going down with the stern. And he's extremely badly burned. Two-thirds of his body's burnt, and, and he wants to give up. It's just like in the movies when the guy says, go on, Skipper, I can't make it. And Pappy McMahon says that to young Jack Kennedy. And Jack says, no, I'm going to save you. And he grabs him by his life jacket. And he's a powerful swimmer. And he swims through high seas to the part of the boat that's still, the bow of the boat that's still uh, floating. And he gets him aboard. And then he goes off and finds a young guy named Harris who's got a bad leg and is wearing a sweater for some reason. And he gets completely sogged. And Kennedy saves him. And even though that guy says, I'm giving up, Skipper, you go on. And these are all in the records, what these guys said. And Kennedy said, I'm not going to let you die. And by the way, for a Boston guy, you're putting on quite an exhibition out here. And he talks the guy back into saving his own life. He gets him back on the boat. And during the night, the boat turns over and it becomes turtle-like, upside down. And the next morning, Jack knows it's not going to make it through another day. It's going to sink. And here they are, miles from anywhere, in the Pacific Ocean, and with Japanese all around them. And their biggest fear is not drowning. Their biggest fear is being captured by the Japanese. And anybody who's read Unbroken knows what I'm talking about. You don't want to be caught by the Japanese. And so they have a little vote. And they decide what they're going to do. And Jack says, you know, I don't have much to live for. At which point, McGuire, one of his Catholic buddies, said, who knew him pretty well, they'd been going to church together, said, you don't have much to live for? You're a Kennedy. Your father's one of the four richest men in the world. And Jack says, yeah, but you guys have kids. It's out of the movies. And then he finally says, look, we're going to swim for that island. It's four miles away. We're going to go for the smallest island we can get to because the Japanese might not get there for a few hours and we'll have a little bit of a chance to maybe get picked up by then, because he still hoped they'd get picked up by their, by their fellow crewmen in other, in other PT boats. And so Jack decides he's going to save the crew. One guy says, there's no way we're going to make it. He says, no, we're going to make it. Four miles away, they figure an island they can make it to, Plum Pudding Island. It's like one of these islands in the Yorker magazine, you know, a couple palm trees on it, you know, and he says, like a little wafer of an island. He says, we're going for Plum Pudding. So he says that four of the guys in the Navy can't swim and five can. So he finds this eight-foot plank and he says, okay, the swimmers stick with the non-swimmers. You're going to save the non-swimmers. And he puts his executive, order in charge, uh, executive officer in charge, the number two guy, and he says, look, you're going to command this little plank here. Don't leave the non-swimmers behind. You're going to paddle along these four miles. He says, I'll take care of Pappy McMahon. Now, this is my favorite scene in, the, in this part of the action of Jack Kennedy's story and figuring out who this guy was. Now, just think about this guy and what he's about to do and whether you'd follow this guy into combat or not. Kennedy pulls out his knife, and it's, as McMahon said later, it was as if he'd been doing it all his life. 
He pulls out his knife, grabs McMahon's life jacket, cuts the strap off of it, pulls it loose, puts it in his teeth, throws Pappy McMahon on his back. Now, this is a guy who's got a badly back, a horrible back congenitally. One of his legs three quarters shorter than the other. He's always had a bad back. And he's just going through this uh, horror of, the, of the being hit by the uh, Japanese ship. He puts the guy on his back, and for four hours he carries Pappy McMahon by pulling him by the strap of his life jacket in his teeth. The whole time Pappy McMahon is, is just hearing the guy breathe and feeling him breathe. He has no idea Jack's back is in terrible shape. He gets him to the island, four hours in the water. Meanwhile, he's sort of commanding by direction his executive water officer to keep the other guys with the uh, plank to make it. They get to the island. Jack falls asleep. First of all, he pukes. He's got so much seawater in him. He pukes and throws up on the, on the beach. Imagine this scene. A skinny guy falls on the beach. Half hour later, he wakes up. He says, I'm going out tonight. He gets his 38 pistol and a flashlight and goes swimming out into the ocean again because he doesn't want his crew left and captured by the Japanese. That night he gets washed away to some sandbar somewhere, wakes up on the sandbar, swims back to the island, grabs his crew again, puts them on the plank again, swims to another island, still looking for water. No water. So he and then Barney Ross, another guy, head off again that night swimming to another island. They finally find some water. And they bring the water back on the third aisle. And after all these days, keeping his crew morale up, he saves his crew. They're finally, some locals, natives come and they get back. The British, some New Zealanders, some Kiwi saves them. This guy stuck with his crew. And he did everything he could. In fact, later on, Kennedy not only stuck with the crew and saved them all and kept them together, he wouldn't go back to the States until everybody in the crew got back. Now, my feeling is word of that kind of behavior gets around. You know? You want this guy to lead you. So Jack Kennedy had, from his early days, this wonderful thing that makes other men follow this man into battle. They trusted him. He was going to look out for them. That guy ends up being president of the United States. That guy gets us through the Cuban Missile Crisis because this country trusted him. That's the guy I wanted to write about. And to try to figure out how he got from there in his 20s to President of the United States so that he could be there when we needed him. And this, finally, what I'm going to talk about now is the best part of the story. Because he was willing to do what very few young men and women are willing to do today. To become a professional politician. To do what is necessary to learn the trade craft that will someday get you to be able to get close to the presidency so that you have a shot at it. Jack Kennedy committed himself in his 20s to becoming a really good politician because that's how it works in our society. You want to be a representative of the people. It's a Republican form of government. You have to get other people to let you be their representative. And that is a craft, that is a talent, that is a career. That's what it is. It isn't some tea party thing where you say, I can understand international finance because I raised a family. It's not that barf that you get today. All right? You, you have to learn. You have to learn the trade of a politician. You have to be an autodidact. As Arthur Schlesinger, that great man, said, politics is essentially a learning profession. Just like you like to know that your dentist reads the manuals, reads the journals, 
He's up to date on pain relief or whatever. You like to know that. You like to know your heart doctor knows what's up. You know, which pills not to prescribe, what's working, what isn't. You like to know this, don't you? You like to have a pro. Well, Jack Kennedy decided to be a pro. And that is, to me, the most audacious thing a young rich kid who has great looks and everything else decided to instead do this. So at the time he ran for Congress, and by the way, he always wanted to go into politics. Don't buy this theory that he did it because his older brother got killed in the war. That opened up the slot for him. He was reading the life, well, the history, the entire history of World War II, World War I, actually, when he was 14 years old at Canterbury. The whole book. That's pretty good for a 14-year-old. He got the New York Times delivered by mail every day when he's at Choate. And while he was at prep school, he would lie on his bed, and his classmates would talk about this. He'd lie on his bed trying to figure out what he could learn when he read an article in the Times. He didn't just read it, a glance at it. He would lie on his bed and say, what am I able to distill out of this? He took reading public affairs seriously. He was the kind of kid most of you are who knew stuff they didn't teach in school. Aren't they the best people? Are the people you want to hang out with the people that know stuff they didn't learn in school? Those are the cool people. That was Jack Kennedy. Gene Kennedy Smith, the last of his siblings, said to me, the best thing that ever happened to Jack Kennedy was that he was always sick. And because he was always sick as a kid with scarlet fever and and what they thought was leukemia right through high school. And he was always getting his blood count. And he had the longest days in the infirmary, we think, it showed. He's either at Boston Baptist or he's out at uh, Mayo or somewhere. He was always sick. Jackie said that about him a week after he was killed. He was the young, sick kid, lonely in bed. That's who he was. He wasn't this great-looking movie star type guy with it all handed to him. He was the young, sick kid who didn't play sports, who read about his heroes, his heroes started with Arthur and Ivanhoe. It evolved to being Churchill and all the modern people he looked up to. He was a kid who loved heroes, grew up loving heroes, the nonfiction ones eventually, and he became a guy who was studying to be a leader. This is who he was. And when it came time to run for Congress, he was still the autodidact. He went around and tried to study the history of Irish America which he'd never been exposed to. The old men never talked about being Irish. And he was, I got his old Dewey Decimal numbers where he had this whole list of books he started to read as, he, as a Congress, running for Congress. He had the Irish, the Irish in the presidency, the Irish in this. The, he was trying to learn how to be an Irish Paul, if you think about it. And he was studying it. He was making lists of maxims. You don't want friends in politics, you want Confederates. Obama should learn that one. You want people to go into the war with you not just pals, to play ball with, guys who are willing to be there when it gets tough, fellow senators and congresspeople. Jack wanted Confederates. So he's studying this, and he learned things like, you got to start early, you got to campaign very early to beat the other guys. You got to catch the worm. You got to retail it. There's no way to win in politics, especially when you're coming into a machine with the regulars all waiting to beat you to think you're just another silver spoon swell and can't wait to beat you. You got to get to know more people than they know. So what he did, since he didn't have any political organization, he built one. Retail politics, met everybody in that district, got to know them, went around to see the councilman, even though he knew the councilman would dump all over him. He wanted to give him the chance to dump all over him because he knew that was the only way to get their respect, was to go visit all the city councilmen in Cambridge and let them pee on him, basically, so that they would get that out of their system. But they'd know he had the guts to go face them down. He would go to events where everybody would say, I came up the hard way, and they'd give all their sad stories, but he, the only war hero, said, I guess I'm the only one that didn't come up the hard way. 
He didn't mind admitting he was the rich kid, but he worked hard and he got elected in a wide field. And the guys who were with him said he would have won, even if he wasn't joking, if he didn't have the old man's money. Of course, he did have the old man's money too. But because he was a war hero and none of the other guys were, and he was the real thing. And the working class guys worked for Jack because they knew even though he was a swell, he had done stuff in the war that they couldn't imagine doing. So he was a hero and that's how he started. And then he began to learn about what all great political leaders have to learn, their times. And what he learned about his times was that, like I grew up, and everybody here my age, a lot of you here my age, I can tell, we grew up after World War II. What happened after World War II? The ethnic groups were gradually accepted because they'd all fought in the damn war. And so every war movie you ever saw had Pretty Boy, it had the guy from Brooklyn, it had all the guys, it didn't have enough black guys because they weren't integrated in the service. That would have moved up history about 12 years faster maybe 20 years faster, we had open service, integrated service. But the Italian guys made it, the Jewish guys made it, the Polish guys made it, because they were all fighting in the war with other guys. That was the great American integration. So coming out of the war, instead of it being like it was with my mom, who told me in Philly, uh, that if you applied for a job with the milk company as a working girl, you better not write Catholic down. You had to write one of the Protestant religions or you didn't get the job. All that went with the war. It just went with the war. It was a wonderful thing. GI Bill, So Jack began to realize, and Kenny O'Donnell, who's one of his confederates, we don't have to keep electing wasps to the Senate anymore. We don't have to keep electing the Salton Stalls and the the, uh, Henry Cabot Lodges. One of us can be a senator. And that was the great change. And we don't have to be embarrassed by the crooks like James Michael Curley because we're going to have clean Irish guys and clean Italian guys running, not like the old days. By the way, I worked for Tip O'Neill. He told me Curley was corrupt by the standards of those days. And I, and I said, personally corrupt? He said, personally corrupt. But finally, he had the clean ethnic politics coming in the early 50s. And Kennedy went around the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth, and found those communities of people who had moved out of the city, who were Democrat by their background, had gone to BC Law or Harvard Law or wherever, had good educations, and they were still Democrats potentially, but you had to sell them. And that's how he campaigned across Massachusetts. He didn't just rely on the Boston machine to bring in the vote. He went around the whole state to the communities and put the pins on the map every night and met all those young lawyers and their families. And he convinced them they could have a clean Irish politician as their senator, a war hero to boot, just like Lodge. That was the great zeitgeist thing he understood and exploited, that the country had changed dramatically. And I went to Catholic grade school. We were still marching around like George M. Cohan in the early 50s. I mean, we had, we had flag day every day of the week. I don't know what was going on, but I think we're trying to prove we're okay still. But Kennedy understood that. In 1960, well, look at this. From 1956 to 1960, he met personally 30,000 people through retail. He and Ted Sorensen flying around the country couldn't beat the old Stevenson crowd. They were the Roosevelt crowd. Eleanor would never buy them. They wanted Stevenson again in 60. The, the LBJ crowd owned Capitol Hill. He had to create, just like he did in Massachusetts, just like he did in the original district in Cambridge, create a Kennedy party. That's what Tip called it. He had to build a political party. And he went out there and did it. 30,000 people. He had a card on each one of them. When it got to going to Los Angeles at the convention in 60, he knew personally half the delegates. That staggering hard work he did as a politician to become president. The hard early work, he wrote about it when he began writing his memoirs before he was killed. I found the tape where Jack began to write his memoirs. He understood that politics was a profession. He was so proud to be in it. And he thought he could beat the other guys. He could beat Nixon, who he always looked up to. 
He thought Nixon was the smartest guy in the Senate when he got there. And, and, and he, he was, they were very friendly in the beginning. And so he wanted to win this. So with the great lesson of Jack Kennedy's was, and you tell this to your young women, and my daughter, I'd like to see her president someday. Uh, you got to do it. You got to be a hero, perhaps. It certainly helps. Very few are graced with that grace. But you have to go out and do it. You have to go out and learn the professional politics. And you have to put the time in and the incredible effort. And that's the stunning story that I came upon with Jack Kennedy. Nothing was handed to him in terms of votes. He had to go out and get them. And he had to learn this wonderful craft of representing people in our democracy. I wish we could get it back, that sense of nobility, that politics can be civil, that guys like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan can actually be friends, which they were after the fight of the day. They got like good attorneys. They can fight in court and after the fight's over, have dinner. That we can actually work and live together in a, com- a common effort, even if we disagree philosophically, which we always will. Anyway, the profession of politics has been enhanced by the Kennedy record. I'm so proud to be able to write this book, to tell you stories you probably never knew about his sickness, about his guts. Uh, there's something in there about his life with other women, which is interesting to some extent. I find it far less interesting that he was a hero that we needed. And uh, I hope you read the book. Thank you all. We have a few minutes for questions. Questions for Chris? Right here, sir. Go ahead. Uh, do the questions have to be about Jack Kennedy? No, no conditions on the questions? Okay. No, no limitations? I was just wondering, um, in the current campaign, which you did mention, um, there is a candidate uh, who said that something that Jack Kennedy said made him throw up. But um, I was wondering, I have not heard anybody come back to that candidate and ask him if he's ever heard of the Article 6 in the U.S. Constitution, which says that no religious test shall ever be required for an office under the United States. I get your point. Look, uh, it's always going to be a tricky question to what extent we bring our values into our public life. I'd like to think we do bring our values. Do we bring our sectarian uh, rules and, uh, and uh, politics into it, I think you have to draw the line somewhere. I mean, if you said everybody in America couldn't eat meat on Friday because of the law, I mean, obviously that would be an absurd case, or, or we all can't eat ham or something. Uh, we can't, if you just take religious sort of precepts and apply them to the law, I think you're missing the point. But do we have values of uh, communitarian values and, and love? Do we bring those values from our, ch- of course we do. This is the tricky part. I think Santorum thinks that you bring the whole shebang with you. You know, I think that's his problem. Jack Kennedy said in that wonderful inaugural address, here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Boy, is that something to think about. Our own work. And we have to fashion it to our democracy and our pluralistic society. And so um, it's never going to be simple. But uh, we know the battles we're involved in today. And um, and in all fairness, if we were in a society that, that, uh, that said there was no, abortion, for example, was illegal, it was punishable by criminal sanction, well, a lot of liberals like me would be involved in changing it because we have values too. 
So it's not a simple question. Obviously, the people that are content with the uh, status quo will always say, keep religion out of politics. And well, that was the case before we did something about civil rights. And it was the civil rights preachers that went down there and really made the changes, like King and the rest of Dr. King. And it was, in fact, a, um, the guys like Cheney and those guys that went down there were buried alive. They believed in something. I think morality belongs in public life. I think we don't want to have anybody under church discipline in public life. I think we can draw a distinction if we're reasonable about it. You know, we don't want mullahs. We don't want sharia of the Christian sort. Right? We, I, I think we've got to avoid sharia. And... Um, you know, it works really well. This society is wonderful. America is wonderful. We do basically get along. We kid about our ethnicity in big cities. I kid about it at work with my friends who are all different backgrounds. I'm still waiting to meet a white Protestant in the journalism world, but that's all right. Uh, but just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but, uh, you know, we get used to it. We kid about it in politics. It's a joy. So I, I always compare it to like going to the Holy Land where they, you can go to a place like the Church of the Nativity now and you'll have the Greek Orthodox, you have the Armenian Church there, you have the Roman Catholic Church, you have all the different rites as well as the different uh, doctrines and all. And they figure it out within a, with a clock watch. At 6.05, this group comes in. At 6.07, the other one comes in. We can work it out. <laughs> Reasonable people expect to be disagreeable with each other and you agree to disagree and... Uh, it's, it's what a democracy's got to be able to handle. And I think we can do it. We've done it either way. It's only once in a while that these cultural issues pop up and one side sees a good advantage in bringing it up and then the other side sees an advantage and the other side having brought it up. Let's face it, the Democrats are enjoying this baby because man, they are loving it because it's simple. It's, it's, it's a fundraiser. You know, I just, uh, Rick Santorum is what he is. You know, hi, the Peace Corps. Change your life. Uh, now, there's an idea. Uh, Jack Kennedy, I, I, I keep coming across impulse with this guy. How that wonderful, graceful impulse, like when Mrs. King was worried she was pregnant, her husband had been arrested for not having the right for breaking parole on a driver's license situation, had been hauled off to some far off. Uh, it turns out that the judge was actually trying to save the guy, but nobody knew at the time. They thought he was hauling him off to be lynched, maybe. Mrs. King is scared to death. These were the times, of course, in 60. And Harris Wofford and Louis Martin, one African-American guy, one white guy, both liberals, get to Sarge Shriver, who was God as far as I'm concerned. And Sarge got to Jack. And he made the call to Mrs. King. And all of a sudden, everything happened. The country was a black people in America were about two to one Democrat. They became about 90 to one Democrat at that point. Jackie Robinson, who was Nixon's guy. There was a lot of, you know, Lionel Hampton was a big Republican. A lot of African-Americans were, were, were Republicans because of Lincoln and because they were more conservative people. But they just, Jackie Robinson was crying because Nixon didn't get it. He said it would be grandstanding to make the call. Then when the president, it's not as big a deal. But when the president called Sandra Fluke the other day, the Georgetown Law student. I thought, well, that's a bit of this. That's the impulse. Somebody went to him and said, you gotta make a call to her. And he said, okay, I'll call her up. Boy, people are gonna remember that in November. Who made the call? And, and, and whatever you say about Romney, he didn't make the call. He didn't have that impulse. He didn't have the right people around him. And that's why we need diversity around us when we work. Because the best thing about diversity, there's bound to be somebody in this circle that thinks of something that's the right thing to do. If you've got all white people around you, you're not going to get the right instincts, you know? And I think Kennedy had Louis Martin. And, and, and what was the result? 
two million copies of a, of a stenographic flyer called the Blue Bomb, and it went around every black church in the country where people could vote, or black at the time, in 60. And they all got the word. Who called and who was no comment Nixon? And Daddy King switched, and he was bigoted against Catholics, and he switched to, uh, to Jack. So the impulse, I love it. I love impulses because you can always tell about the leader on their impulse basis. Sure, they sit around and thought about it three weeks later. I'm sure Romney's saying, maybe we should have done something. <laughs> too late, bro. You know, too late. You missed that train. Just a couple more questions. But it is morality we're talking about. I'm not one of those who say we could be a coldly secular society because we miss our best values that way, I think. Sure. Chris, uh, first, thank you very much for coming to Baltimore. And well, thank you all for filming this beautiful room. Fabulous. Thank you. you. You talked about John Kennedy's amazing ability to go out and meet all the people in the crowd. In, in today's world, with the super PACs and television, do you still advise the same thing for politicians? Is that, is that well, the in, way in to go? Fairness to, in fairness to Rick Santorum, it's the only reason he's in the game right now. He doesn't have all that money. It is David Goliath. I mean, step aside from the positions you take. There's still room out there for guts and for uh, personality. Uh, Romney, unfortunately, doesn't have one. No, that's a problem. You can't go get one. I mean, uh, you you have a problem if you can't. I mean, we've had, look, I don't want to get in it because I'm going to tell you, both parties have this problem. Uh, We've had recent Democratic candidates for president. I will not name them. They're friends of mine who have a bit of the same problem. It's ability to connect. And we've had Republicans who could connect. Rockefeller, with all his zillions, could connect with average people. Nelson Rockefeller would, hiya, fella, how you doing? I mean, you know, he also, he's also died in a very interesting way, too, which, which uh, would, they couldn't close the coffin. But, you know, I mean, uh, but, you know, uh, I, I just think it's a regular guy, eh? Regular guy. Can't be more regular than him. <laughs> Ask your friends what I'm talking about, you know. But, uh, but I think the ability to connect... Uh, is uh, Ronald Reagan, for example, is a fascinating guy. Tip O'Neill, who I worked for, knew everybody personally. And he was a great, I'm trying to, my next book's on him and Reagan and how they get along. It's a fascinating story, but Tip would like meet everybody. My, my Annie Eleanor, who's still a nun, she's been teaching what we used to call retarded kids since 1944 in Philadelphia, in the Catholic school system. Since 44, my mom's sister. Eleanor comes in and she's a liberal, one of these passionario liberal nuns, and she comes in the lobby for all the good liberal causes, and she's sitting in the corner of the room, this quiet woman, and in comes Tip, rolling in, you know, big guy comes rolling in the room. Hiya, dear. How long you been out of the habit? <laughs> he immediately connected with the one moment in life when she took off the stiff thing, you know, and could wear regular clothes. I mean, immediate connection. And uh, other guys don't have that. Our other politicians don't have it. And so I think, uh, where am I at on this? But uh, it's fun. I Chris. think politics is something you can learn, and even guys who are stiff and, uh, and women who are stiff. Are, I mean, uh, God, Hillary Clinton at the end of the campaign, she starts another one, you can't stop her because she has all the wisdom and, and vintage quality of the first time around. And I think she has thought it through a million times, like everybody uh-huh. loses a close one. She'll come back at it. And if she were a Republican, she'd be automatically the next nominee because they always give it to the one whose turn it is. Uh, the Democrats have a more of a, they have a, like a foul shooting contest to, yeah. to see who gets it. They, they, they feed the hot hand. What's your name? Good. You're hitting today. You're in the game. Uh, never heard of you before. Republicans, how long have you been here? You know, 
you got to work your way up in the Republican Party. The Democrats, we go for the, well, I'm sorry, not we. People who are Democrats go for the hot hand. <laughs> Feed the hot hand. Hi, hi Chris. Uh, I'm a white guy Protestant from Massachusetts. Good for you. You must feel very insecure. Wow. <laughs> You must love that Scott Brown. Isn't he cute? No comment. That, that's <laughs> the why guy in I'm the in, truck. That's why I'm in Maryland. Uh, and my last name is Clinton, so thank you for the lead-in. Nice, um, And I teach political science part-time. Thank you. My students today saw the 10-minute speech in Houston because we talked about religion and Good politics. For you. They had no idea what was going on until they saw that. But what I want to ask you about is about the 1960 election. Can you tell me, please, where all the ballot boxes went? Are they really at the bottom of Lake Michigan in Cement? <laughs> well, no, no. Uh, yes or no? Well, first of all, first of all, Illinois did not decide the electoral vote. It didn't decide the election. So, if there were people who I know, some people who were dead voted. They were no, they just wanted to. <laughs> no, I went over there's a there's a there was good reporting on that by the journal. There's a guy wrote. For, there was there's some of it, and there was some of it downstate too. But you know the, the election. You know the, you're a teacher. You know the electoral college wasn't decided by that. Yeah, but Texas was problematic too, because you had no poll watchers. You just had one party back then. So there's no way to know what, what Johnson was up to. I mean, Jack used to always call him landslide, because he won purportedly by 87 votes uh, in 80 and 48. But you know, I don't think there's a case to look. My view is that Nixon had uh, his attorney general looking at it. Uh, he had uh, people looking around. He did a, a little bit of do- due diligence on it. And I think he decided they, wouldn't have the, they didn't have it. Uh, a lot of the ballots were burnt. Well, let me just say this. I'm going to give Nixon credit for that. I think Nixon and Teddy Kennedy did too, finally, years later, that he could have caused a real corruption if he had gotten very litigious there and just held up the whole thing. And uh, there's a wonderful scene, by the way, to make you feel better, because I do feel good about this country, where John... McCain, who I think is a noble person. And like always, the Republicans nominated you too late. I mean, they gave Bob Dole the nomination in 96 after giving him the VP nomination in 76. I mean, he should have been a little further ahead on his schedule there. But they don't do it until they beat you up and you lose three or four times like George Herbert Walker Bush loses. Reagan won it on his third time. They just like to beat you up a little bit in that party. Uh, In this movie that's come out, and it's really based on, on good reporting by Howam and, and um, Halpern. He is offered by his state. Look, we're losing. You know, it's like in basketball. I keep telling what goes on in politics. You know why they always foul the other team when they're losing the game in basketball? It's the only way to get the ball back. So you're watching these games at the end. They always foul. Why do these guys have to foul? Because it's the only way to get the ball. And if you don't have the ball, you can't score. So you give the other guy the shots, but hope he misses them and you get the ball back. If you don't do that, he'll work the clock, even with the shot clock. You'll never get in the game again. So politicians at the end are always asked by their last weekend experts. They come in and see the guy, and they say, uh, and they're all on the side of the the candidate. They say, you know, the way things are going right now, the projected numbers, the way they're headed, you're going to lose unless you run this ad. I mean, Bob Casey had to run the zither ad up in Pennsylvania, remember, against Young Scranton, the Maharishi ad. Okay, so these guys run this stuff. And so these guys in the movie, and I believe this is based on reporting, went to him and said, you got to do Jeremiah right. It's the only killer we got. Uh, God damn America. you got to run that right through the election. And you know what he said? He said two things, McCain. He said, I want to campaign 
my grandkids are proud of. And then he said, the killer, when you knew he meant it, he said, you know, did you ever hear about this guy who uh, was running for president? He had an adopted kid from Bangladesh. And the other side said, no, that's not his adopted kid. That's his love child from a black woman. And played that in South Carolina where it would hurt him. He said, that's why I'm not going to do this. Because he wasn't like W. He wouldn't do it. So I think there's nobility in this business, and I, I'm always taken with it. I get for clamp thinking about it. Because there really is guys out there and women out there who will do the right thing and give it away rather than do the wrong thing. And so uh, I give it to Nixon. He didn't hold the thing up, you know. Thank you for teaching. This will be our last question. Okay. Thanks again for coming. Um, yeah. I think I'll get beat up if I don't say my wife is your number one fan. <laughs> okay, my question is, uh, you said that uh, President Kennedy was a professional pol- politician. In your opinion, do you think uh, Obama has the same uh, ability? Or do you think he's just, uh, I don't know, someone's just, just looking for, uh, I don't know. All right, I'll tell you what I think. Idealist. I'll tell you, let me help. Let me, I would disabuse you of your skepticism. Okay, but you have a point. Kennedy mastered what we call in the business retail politics from 46 on, meeting people, selling them individually, uh, connecting. You know, Reagan was all wholesale. He didn't know anybody. He didn't even know his cabinet secretary. He didn't know Sam Pierce was a, hi, Mr. Mayor, I'm your secretary of HUD. Uh, you know, he, he, didn't know, he didn't know anybody, but he knew all of us. He could talk to us all on a big television station. He talked to the guy in Milwaukee on the factory line. You never meet the guy, but he could talk to him. He just didn't know anybody in particular. <laughs> Jack Kennedy was very good at the old-style politics because he came up through it. Word politics, writing maybe a letter to people, a form letter maybe, but uh, basically meeting people and working them, building his own political base and confederates, and then getting people to go around and work the districts for him, uh, building a team, building an organization, like you know in Baltimore, you know, an organization. And um, only in, and then he gave a speech at the convention uh, at, at, at Los Angeles at the Coliseum that last night outside, which wasn't so good. He was not a great speaker right up until 60. Um, he didn't have that card yet. He had the other cards, charm, good looks, money, organization, a good Irish mafia behind him, which is, by the way, is a, it's not a, really a mafia. I had talking to somebody recently. I said, is it a mafia? No, it's not a mafia. It was a nickname. Uh, a bunch of pals who were Irish. And he... Um, he didn't pick the oratory up until about 60 when he saw a speech coach from Boston College who he was working on. And he didn't really come into his own until that brilliant opening eight minutes in that first debate with Nixon that blew him away. I'm convinced he won the election because he had memorized that eight opening minutes, which were just killer. Nixon could never get back on his feet again. So Obama, on the other hand, gets the oratory first. You know, I get to throw up my leg because of his speech back in 2004. He, able to, he was able to give that speech. Apparently, they just dug up when he was given back in college ten, or law school 10, 20 years before that. They just dug that up. He had that oratory down. And it's funny because he didn't have the black church experience behind him. He didn't have that ability to learn cadence and keep the crowd moving with you and that connection. He developed it on his own, but he had the oratory. And he knew how to write a really good speech. He was a great writer, by the way. How many of these guys since Jefferson could write their own books? And he had written a book and about his father. And so when he came before us in 2004, and people like me recognized him, thought, wow, this guy's the first black president. That's what I said on the air that night. Right after, I said, this is the first black, I didn't know when, but I said, this is the first black president, first African-American. But he had, I thought he had all the other cards too. 
I thought he was good at retail. He's good at making friends on Capitol Hill. He would build alliances. I just intuited he must be good at it. He wasn't. He's had to learn that part. And so he doesn't have great uh, organization building skills in terms of other members of the Senate. He doesn't. He gets home at night with Michelle, and they, they live up there. They, they live they, with their daughters. He doesn't have guys up playing cards with them all night like he did in Springfield. He doesn't build relationships with people like uh, Steny Hoyer, where he should be doing. He doesn't spend enough time with people. He doesn't do the casework he ought to be doing with people like Clyburn, you know, in the leadership. He's not working membership. He's, he's a solo act. And a solo act's very dangerous. So that means you have an off night, you have an off night. You got no, nobody backing you up. And that's going to be his challenge. He's a brilliant solo act, but he's not a leader yet. But he's learning it. And he learns every day. And I've watched him at these press conferences. I watched his skill develop. I thought the press conference this week was masterful. And I thought he handled BB Netanyahu pretty damn well. And he's tough. And so uh, the first time he met Netanyahu, Netanyahu uh, ate his lunch. This time, I think Netanyahu is trying to figure out how this guy won this battle. He didn't sign anything either, by the way. I mean, he could be still bluffing. Who knows? So um, it's interesting to watch how he, how he learns. But as I said a few minutes ago, Arthur Sledge said politics is a learning profession. It's just that he learned the oratory first. And a lot of us get this, this illusion with him because, my God, he was so good at that, he must be good at all the other, and he hasn't been as good at that. Building the alliances on Capitol Hill and things that it has to do. And, and being tough on enemies, too. I mean, read my book about how Kennedy, I did it tonight in my commentary, how Kennedy took after Big Steel. Those guys raised prices on him. They screwed him. He sicked the FBI to see which girlfriends they're having uh, dinner with. And, and he wanted to know what hotel they were staying at. And he wanted to know it all. He, of course, it was just to check on the antitrust possible violation. But he was going after these guys, just barely within the law. So he played hardball. Kennedy. He was rough and he had that defiant Irish attitude, don't screw me. I'm not sure Obama has that don't screw me attitude, which can be helpful because it gives you adrenaline. But he's a, he's a, he may still be one of our great few presidents. I'm still thinking it. he's got some time. And, uh, and he is also lucky. Don't you think? This guy has luck. Alan Keyes? Isn't he, is he from around here? That was his opponent in the general election for the United States Senate. He gets to be a U.S. senator by beating Alan Keyes. Who can't? <laughs> Who can't do that? Anyway, it's been great being with you. Please stick around. I will sign every book of anybody who wants to stick around tonight. So if you leave, it's because you want to leave. I'm staying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Matthews. Thank you, Dan. Book signing right in the BST. Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Mr. Matthews.